Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, um, who's Robert O'Brien? He is uh, apparently the national security advisor, according to Twitter, which is where we find out these things now. Robert O'Brien. He owns a pub uh, in DuPont Circle, oh. right? <laughs> no, actually. Oh, that's, that's James O'Farrell's. <laughs> when I first heard O'Brien, the hostage affairs envoy, I thought, wait, Jim O'Brien was the hostage affairs envoy, but that was in the Obama administration. <laughs> no, he's, no, he's gone from being a hostage negotiator to being a hostage. <laughs> <laughs> it's, Those it's skills great. will come in handy. As yeah. Trump said he's as giving I. a statement. It was very carefully read and rehearsed, and he was blinking in Morse code. <laughs> and, and holding today's newspaper. <laughs> we'll talk about him next week after we learn something about him. Excellent. If he's still national security advisor next week. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Whistle Stop edition. I like it. You like that? With apologies. In, in honor of John, John Dickerson. Dickerson. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's listening. Uh, I'm Shane Harris. Usually I, I run these titles by you guys, but lately I've been surprising you. I like it. That's it adds good. the air yeah, of surprise exactly. to these recordings. And people now are just like, all those times that they laughed and they already knew what the title was. No, it's my delivery that really sells it, I think. Yeah, well, but... Chain off the leash is always better. Uh, Look, listeners, this is a carefully scripted <laughs> We prepare for weeks in advance. So much time. And, and, and there's so much stuff edited retroactively. Things oh. moved around. The director's cut's and, like three and a half hours yeah, I mean, long. It goes like you have no idea what the post production <laughs> on Rational Security Robert sounds O'Brien like. was when we actually taped the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Now we got to pretend we don't. Uh, I am here in the jungle studio with my good friends Tomorrow Kaufman, what is Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Yo. Hi. On the podcast this week, the director of national intelligence refuses to tell Congress about a whistleblower allegation that may involve President Trump. Israelis go to the polls as Benjamin Netanyahu fights to maintain power. And Trump advisor Corey Lewandowski, you remember him, gives defiant testimony to lawmakers considering whether to impeach the president. Defiant. It was so many hashtags. Obstreperous. My toddler also gave defiant testimony yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) was pretty similar. You probably got Was he held in contempt? (laughs) (laughs) You wanted to, right? Um, Let's start with this uh, really kind of mysterious and extraordinary whistleblower investigation. I'm going to do a quick recap just to get everyone up to speed. But here's what we know, and we should start by saying we don't know what the allegation by this whistleblower actually is, which makes it even more mysterious. But according to publicly released letters from the DNI and from the House Intelligence Committee and also to some reporting that we and others have done, uh, there is an individual – Apparently an employee of the intelligence community who was for a period of time assigned to the National Security Council staff at the White House. Not clear if this person witnessed something or became aware of it, but filed a complaint with the inspector general for the intelligence community, which sits in the office of the director of national intelligence. So the sort of big body overseeing the IC. And Shane. Is the ICIG pronounced ICIG no, it's or ICIG. is it ICIG? We're calling it ICIG. Okay. ICIG. ICIG. <laughs> no, it's ICIG, but we'll call it ICIG. So complains to the ICIG who looks at it, uh, determines that it involves an urgent matter, which is something specified in the statute maybe we can get into. Ordinarily, these things would then get notified over to the oversight committees in Congress, but something happens that that stops that. The, uh, the big DNI, at least somebody in his office or who's an acting DNI, we've talked about before, Joe McGuire, uh, decides to share this information with the Department of Justice. I think we can maybe infer the Office of Legal Counsel, but we don't know for sure, who then comes back and says the 
allegation here potentially involves uh, privileged communications. The DNI also looks at this and says, hey, this involves some kind of allegation of activity that's not by someone or something in the intelligence community proper, although it involves an intelligence activity, which sometimes is known as spying or covert action. And the DNI says to Congress, ordinarily, we tell you what these things are about. This time, we can't for all of those reasons. So we find ourselves, Ben, with this allegation of potential wrongdoing by someone who is not in the intelligence community, who is conducting intelligence activity, but is somehow beyond the jurisdiction of the DNI, which makes many people think it points to the president or people close to him. Does that seem like a, a fair assumption based on what we know? It is certainly a fair hypothesis. There are a few uh, good reasons to assume this may involve the president or at least the president or, or somebody very close to the president. So one is the invocation of the word privilege, right, which sounds in the broader aggressiveness with which the Trump White House is resisting document production demands on the grounds of executive privilege. And so when you say we're not going to give you this this material or this information that you normally would have access to because it's privileged, right now that really sets off ding, ding, dings that we're talking about Trumpy stuff. So that's indication number one. Indication number two is that the DNI appears to have consulted with the Justice Department before refusing to provide this information. That's actually a pretty unusual thing to bother to do this. Usually the relationship between the intelligence community and the uh, oversight committees are really not mediated by the Justice Department. And so for them to have gone to justice and said, you know, do we really have to provide this? But DJ is kind of the lawyer for the executive branch. Right. Too. Look, I don't think – I'm not sure there's anything inappropriate about it. No, no, I'm just it. saying it's it, another it, indicator that we're talking maybe about something over at 1600 Yes, and it just suggests a degree to which the matter was elevated uh, that, you know, somebody's alarm bells are going off. So you have something where the sort of – Bill Barr's Justice Department is saying, no, you don't have to provide that and using words like privileged. And then there's this other matter that you mentioned, which is that they specifically said uh, it involves a person who's not part of the intelligence community. Now, it could be a lot of people at the White House, but you have privileged communications at the White House that involve privilege and that they care enough about to keep away from Congress and go ask the Justice Department about, and you begin to scratch your head and say, this is probably something that at least Adam Schiff believes, whether rightly or wrongly, uh, may be a kind of substantial thing involving the president. Yeah, so whenever this story first came out, right, so Adam Schiff wrote like this really astonishingly angry letter basically that he saying – he released late on a Friday evening, by the way. While we oh. were having dinner. <laughs> yeah, so quite rude. Rude. Uh, Inconsiderate. Um, you know, but, but you know, using terms, language that um, – especially for someone like Schiff is a pretty measured uh, individual, you know, really I think set off a lot of alarm bells for people. And my initial response was sort of, well, he's angry because there's evidence of a very serious process foul – that's that's a big deal, but I think people might be overly reading into how sort of serious the underlying complaint is, or does the committee know what the nature of that complaint is? Does it involve somebody like the president? So my initial sort of response was, whoa, whoa, slow down. You could imagine sort of bizarre legal interpretations, and, and let's face it, um, we have a uh, new group of uh, attorneys in the intelligence community who do not have the same experience, one might say, that um, mm -hmm. prior administrations have brought. And so you could imagine sort of something that's more like a screw-up or an innocent explanation or people not understanding. In the sort of intervening several days, every new piece of information that has come out gives me reason to think, no, this is not something that falls in the, well, maybe the complaint is substantively less uh, of a concern and this is really just a process issue. I think every indication suggests there is a very, very serious underlying complaint here. So one of them is that Schiff has said that the acting DNI has been directed by, quote, a higher authority. So... 
weird language. Um, like Hebrew national hot dog? <laughs> that's why I was like, well, that's a little bit odd. Yeah, um, <laughs> or the president of the United States, right? That, that like he's, it's not that he's independently exercising this judgment. It's that somebody is directing him to do it. I think that's pretty significant. Also, they're offering pretty sort of um, specious legal arguments for not doing it. So basically, there are two uh, arguments that the um, director of national intelligence is citing for not transmitting this information to the committee. The law says shall transmit, right? So the intelligence community isn't covered by the initial whistleblower statutes. There's a special law that applies to the intelligence community that basically says, hey, if you have a whistleblower complaint and you go through the proper channels, you go to the inspector general, he transmits that up to the director and then through the congressional committee. If the director declines to submit your referral or you don't think he's done it fairly or accurately, there's a mechanism for you to communicate to the congressional committees directly yourselves, asterisk whether or not this person will invoke that, um, and you won't be retaliated against. So this is somebody who's using that sort of uh, that law, that proper sort of reporting mechanism. Um, the idea that the person is not in the IC is relevant to the complaint has nothing to do with the law. The law doesn't say whistleblowing on wrongdoing for a limited group of people. It says related to intelligence activities. Which this apparently certainly is. Right, which which this certainly is, right? And, and they aren't even saying it's not like, right? They're, right. they're not even pretending it's not right. related to intelligence. So like one, they're putting out this really sort of flimsy argument that kind of doesn't pass the small test on its face. Um, and then this sort of second bizarre assertion, really murky assertion of privilege, which I do think in sort of in, in an environment in which the administration is calling everything privilege becomes concerning. You know, there is one thing that I, I think people need to be really, really alarmed about this story. And that's because intelligence oversight depends on a measure of good faith and trust and sort of participation from both sides. We're asking Congress to stand in the shoes of the American people in circumstances in which the public actually can't know the underlying facts. They can't actually know what's going on. And the way that we've developed this entire structure of oversight is through people observing norms, not forcing Congress to subpoena people and to fight to just sort of hand things over. And so I think the concern is, is if we now see the intelligence community adopting a position of we don't have to give you this stuff and you can try and fight us in court or right, we're going to assert privilege, the entire system will crumble even if they ultimately were to win on the merits or ultimately get this turned over because – this isn't a system that can that can have that kind of delay. It depends on, you know, the, this free flow of information. And so even I think we're in a really dangerous place right now. You know, I following up on that point, Susan, I think it's worth remembering that the reason that we have this unique, carefully developed system of congressional oversight of intelligence is because of abuses of the intelligence agencies prior to the, you know, prior to the 1970s and the Church and Pike Commissions. And this is one of those powers of the executive branch that can very easily be manipulated and used for nefarious purposes by people who don't care about norms or democratic accountability or the rule of law. And that's why these oversight practices are so important for the whole government, but especially here. And I think that, you know, we all expressed similar concerns at the outset of the Trump administration with respect to the Justice Department and federal law enforcement and federal investigatory powers. But the intelligence community is the other part of the executive branch where, you know, I really get concerned about the nature of abuses. And that, and so you have to ask, like, OK, if they are willing to go to the wall with a bizarre interpretation of law and, you know, risk public exposure through this fiery letter from the House chairman um, to protect this information. Like, what is at stake here for them? And we know that the thing that Trump cares about most of all is Trump's political viability and Trump's political survival. So I don't want to be a conspiratorial, but, you know, the readiness to do this stuff really, really 
makes me concerned about the substance that's behind it. Just like the fact that they have now gone through five general counsels at the Department of Homeland Security makes me think that they really want to do something with respect to Homeland Security authorities that the lawyers don't want to let them do. You know, so the more they fight, the more you have to worry. And we should note too, I mean, there are there are historical reasons to be concerned about this that that come after the sort of the church pike era and COINTELPRO <clears throat> kind of a Watergate era abuses. I mean, we, in a recent example, we have security clearance says being granted to people who were adjudicated not to be uh, – should not have them like Jared Kushner and others and questions about the president sharing information in the Oval Office. Now, that's obviously kind of within his purview. We've all learned the president has a lot of leeway when it comes to classification issues. Kind of feels like that's not what's being discussed here. But when you start talking about, as has been revealed in these letters, intelligence activities being conducted by people out outside the intelligence community, there is a precedent for that. It's called Iran-Contra. And there was a period of history. <laughs> or or maybe Brian Hook texting ship captains well, in the Gulf. Who knows? And I mean, I want to be like, I want to be. What's $2 million among friends? Well, and I want to also be like, I want to be extremely clear with listeners when I say this, because they know I'm reporting on this issue. I have zero reason to believe or evidence to think that's what's going on here. But just to kind of underscore the reason we have these systems set up and why oversight is so important is we do have somewhat recent history of what happens when national security advisors and their underlings decide that they can operate outside of this intelligence apparatus. And that was a scandal of epic proportions that imperiled the presidency uh, and, and led to all kinds of dark places. So, you know, there are, we have a history, both of it seems to me, the oversight apparatus and people trying to get around that apparatus quite intentionally and should have no reason that, you know, that's, that's, that stopped because that was 30 years ago. And this is an administration that clearly has demonstrated that it, uh, it sees rules as something to be often circumvented, not to be adhered to faithfully. I mean, one thing I would note is this is another example, I think, of the really important role that Richard Burr, I think, um, didn't plan to play, but, you know, is has being thrust into. And that's that he really is the only person who remains a congressional validator in this situation that, you know, whenever Adam Schiff says there's a serious and urgent concern that it involves, you know, serious or flagrant problems of abuse as defined underneath the statute, you know, that's Adam Schiff. And so you have, you know, the sort of the, the Fox News ecosystem just dismissing that. Devin Nunes, you know, less than worthless, I think is a generous uh, characterization of his contributions to the situation. Um, You know, and and so that really does leave Richard Burr as the one person who is a Republican who has a long history and sort of has built up a reserve of credibility on national security issues. And so at least for somebody like me, um, you know, not to say that I think Adam Schiff would overstate it, but I, I think one of the things that's going to be really important is to see if Burr decides to make a public statement um, because I, I really think he has the ability to either way ramp up the public right. pressure and say, hey, guys, there's a real problem here, or really tamp things down and so sort of keeping an eye on him. As I might say on Twitter, word, I, I really think uh, the Burr point is critical here that Burr is not somebody who is ever going to come out in a Jeff Flake or Bob Corker-like way you know, as a critic of the president. But on a fairly consistent basis, in his capacity as the Intelligence Committee chairman in the Senate, he has run a pretty bipartisan ship on oversight matters, and he has even been willing to take some pretty serious criticism uh, for doing so. He does it essentially silently, um, but he does do it. And so the question of where the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is equally entitled to the House Intelligence Committee, to the information that the White House is withholding, if it were you know, the Judiciary Committee and you're dealing with Chairman Lindsey Graham, he might cheerfully say, it's fine if the White House you know, and the intelligence community doesn't give me information that my committee is historically entitled to and is entitled to under the law. Burr is not going to do that. I think he's actually going to, if he thinks that this is important and that this is material that his committee is entitled to, he's very likely to demand it. He may do it very quietly. He may do it without, you know, without a lot of bombast. But watching where Richard Burr is and specifically where he and Warner are together in relation to Schiff, where Schiff is, is a very – will be a very good indicator of whether Schiff is 
you know, out to lunch in some kind of partisan fashion or whether he's on to something serious or somewhere in between. So the mystery of the allegation still with us and the mystery of who won the Israeli elections. Still Tammy, with us. Still with us. No, yeah, democracy I, won in Israel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tammy, you may have been up. I hope you slept. I Oh, I slept. Don't okay. worry. So we're talking now, just to, to give readers a sense, because <laughs> things, things may have changed by the time you hear this podcast, but it's 3 o'clock Washington time on Wednesday. First, Tammy, what do we know about the results in these elections and how Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu fared in them? Sure. So this is, let's recall, Israel's second election in a few months because uh, in the April elections, there was a very hard-fought campaign between uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's Likud party and a new electoral alliance, the Blue and White Party, that ended in essentially a dead heat. Uh, Netanyahu tried and failed to put together a governing coalition, a parliamentary majority. And then in an unprecedented move in Israeli political history, rather than um, giving a chance for the head of the Blue and White Party, the head of the opposition, to try and form a government, Netanyahu asked the Knesset, the parliament, to dissolve itself. Uh, So Israelis had to go to the polls again, which they did yesterday. There was a lot of maneuvering over the course of the summer. There had been a lot of fragmentation on both the left and the right. But by election day, the right had managed to coalesce into a few major blocks while the left was still in a lot of disarray. And so structurally, there was an expectation that Netanyahu would come out at least as strong as he was in the spring, if not a little stronger. As it happens, as of right now, and not all the votes have been counted, um, the two major parties are in a dead heat, both in terms of the the seats they themselves won and in terms of the blocks that they represent in coalescing with relatively like-minded parties. Now, neither of those blocks have enough seats to form a majority in the parliament and therefore a government. The kingmaker, therefore, is Avigdor Lieberman, the head of the Israel is my home party, and an immigrant from the former Soviet Union who lives in a settlement, who is a nationalist, but uh, has uh, really emphasized in this campaign that he is a secularist and wants to keep the ultra-Orthodox parties out of the next government. So as kingmaker, he says his preference is for a unity coalition between the two major parties. I guess there were, there are a few things I would keep my eye on. One is, with this election outcome, Netanyahu doesn't have a governing majority with a right-wing coalition. He will not, therefore, be able to get parliament to vote him immunity from the potential criminal corruption charges that he may be facing in just a couple of weeks. Um, So the likelihood is that at some point early next year, the prime minister, even if he's not still the prime minister, will be indicted on one or more of these corruption cases. And Trump can't pardon him. Trump cannot pardon him, although under Israeli law, he can remain as prime minister while he is indicted and undergoing trial. But he's not going to get immunity, which is what he wanted most. Will he survive as prime minister? Maybe, if he can cultivate splits among his opposition and win some of them over to his side. But it's also possible that this is the end of the 10-year reign of Benjamin Netanyahu, There are other questions to look at in terms of the fate of religion and politics in Israel, in terms of populism and the fate of democracy in Israel. But that's where we are right now. Stay tuned. So, Ben, good day for democracy. I saw a lot of people on Twitter, by the way, wringing their hands. And Tammy, you had a nice rejoinder to this saying – He's not conceding the election. He's claiming media bias. I think you've actually laid out here why yeah, well, it's just I, too soon to say. If, if I can just rant about this for one moment, there was then you can talk a very misleading headline by Axios, the king of clickbait political reporting, uh, that said, you know, Netanyahu refuses to concede. And so Americans were were saying, this is what's going to happen to us in 2020. Trump's going to refuse to accept the legitimacy of the election results. Netanyahu didn't concede because he hasn't lost yet. 
Um, and the Israeli system is different from the American system. He may get to form a government even if he ends up with fewer seats than the next party. I did run into one of our colleagues, Natan Sachs, when I asked him, you know, when will we know the answer, expecting him to say, oh, you know, by 2 a.m., uh, you know, this was last night. And he looked at me and he said, now. I don't know, maybe mid-November. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think everything Tamara just said is exactly right. And I also think this is a bigger deal and a bigger day than you might conclude from those things. So first of all, one important thing about Israeli democracy in general is that always the margins are extremely thin. So in the spring, the time of the last election, Netanyahu's bloc uh, accounted for 60 out of 120 seats. He needed 61 to form a government. He got 60. Uh, so the Knesset dissolves and there's new elections. Right now, according to the current vote count, which accounts for 90, 91 percent of the vote, his block is somewhere in the 55, 56 range. So he's lost a margin of four or five seats, best guess at this point. That difference sounds like a very small amount. It's actually immense. Because what it means is that if that's if that turns out to be right, then there is no plausible right wing coalition, which means at a global level, this is the first time the right wing populist movements in you know any of the countries that we've been fretting about has lost. Now, whether they still have a role to play in Israeli society, of course they do. They're not going away. But this is a moment, you know, we've talked about the relationship internationally between these movements. And this is a this is a moment at which this kind of authoritarian, inflected or friendly nationalism, Likud is a very complicated animal in that regard. It has some genuine democratic and liberal elements and some genuinely not democratic and liberal elements. And this government has been as such voted out. And what will replace it is a really interesting question, a really difficult question. It will probably also have some illiberal elements. And Avigdor Lieberman, the head of this, this not a liberal, not a liberal, <laughs> whatever he is, he's a really complicated animal. But what he has stood for in this context of this election is a kind of right wing Israeli secularism that is that involves foundationally standing up for the secular nature of the state as opposed to the orthodox Jewish nature of the state. And so you have here uh, the other factor that I think is really important is that turnout among Palestinian Israeli citizens in support of the uh, Arab parties, the joint list, was up very substantially over the last few months. And so what you have is a kind of revitalization of the parts of the Israeli electorate. And all of this involves a swing of a very small number of seats. But you have a revitalization of the elements of the society that are not interested in right-wing religious nationalism. Does that mean, Tim, maybe answers for you, maybe your comment, but one of the things that has struck me and in so many of my, granted not huge in number, but I think significant thinkers I've talked to about the state of Israeli politics is everyone keeps talking about that there is no credible left in Israeli politics anymore. Are what we're seeing now is that's not true? I mean, or is this more of a rejection of the kind of right wing or is the left sort of coming back? I mean, how should we think about that? Yeah, I don't know that it's appropriate to think about it in terms of a revitalization of the left. If by the left, we mean what the left has typically meant in Israel, which is a political tendency that favors a negotiated peace with the Palestinians and a two-state solution. The blue and white electoral alliance that opposed Bibi Netanyahu actually didn't talk about a two-state solution in its campaign. And two of its three heads seem to have fairly conservative views when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So on that issue, I think what we can say is Netanyahu's failure to secure a right-wing majority means he will not be able to carry out his threat pledge to annex Jewish settlements in the West Bank and apply Israeli law there. A week ago, he reiterated that pledge, and I thought it was very likely should he win. So I think we can breathe a sigh of relief. But I don't think we're seeing a revitalization of the peace camp. Certainly not. On the point that Ben made, I guess I would say I agree up to a point. 
I think that we can be glad that, we, you know, this is a case where we saw a, a populist with deeply illiberal practices and discourse really try to manipulate and overthrow some of the rules in order to advantage himself at the ballot box. And that's what that's what turns democratically elected leaders into authoritarians is when they start to abuse the rules to rig elections and make sure they can't lose. Netanyahu tried to do that this time. And um, he failed procedurally, which is good. And then he failed at the ballot box, which was a repudiation of the strategy. So while I'm more skeptical than you are about the democratic credentials of some of those Israeli politicians, left, right, and center, I would say that this electoral outcome was good for Israeli democracy. Just sort of a, a minor point, but I, I think on that last point you were making, I, I, there is something really interesting sort of seeing who has designed their systems better in terms of dealing with executive wrongdoing. And right, we have chosen very, very different models for what our systems of government look like, what our systems of holding, you know, executives, presidents, prime ministers accountable. And on paper, you wouldn't necessarily know how this was going to go. But we actually have two leaders who are happy to break norms and rules in order to try and remove themselves from accountability mechanisms. And we're going to see how that plays out in the Israeli system and whether or not that works under that kind of structure. And we are going to see how that plays out within the U.S. structure. And so just um, from a purely academic point of view, it is uh, certainly interesting to watch these systems sort of function under the tremendous pressure that their leaders are currently putting on them. I think that's a great point, Susan. And to the extent that there's you know, an argument that parliamentary systems are are inherently more democratic because the the chief executive, the prime minister, relies on the confidence of the House, the elected representative body. It is interesting that in the Israeli parliamentary system, although not in all, the chief executive does not have immunity. Um, and part of the argument that Netanyahu was making for getting immunity legislation passed was, well, the U.S. has presidential immunity. And look so. how it's working out for that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think I think the whole idea, he discredited the idea himself quite uh, effectively by his own conduct in Israel. But I think if he hadn't done it, Trump is doing it for him, too. Uh, so, Susan, Corey Lewandowski. Who? He was yeah. just a coffee boy. That's George Papadopoulos. That's George Papadopoulos. <laughs> Although, Corey Lewandowski. Wait, I thought that was Bibi Netanyahu. He's Cor- just a coffee boy. <laughs> Corey Lewandowski, who at times it seemed was not even willing to acknowledge that he knew Donald Trump, unless, of course, it was uh, spelled out in the Mueller report <laughs> what he did on behalf of Donald Trump, gave, I don't even know the right adjective for it, baffling, bewildering. Petulant. Audacious. I mean, audacious might be a good word too, because there were there were moments in this testimony that he gave before the House Judiciary Committee, where essentially he acknowledged, yes, I was lying to the media when I said when I talked about, for instance, whether or not the special counsel's office uh, had interviewed me, uh, and then somehow tried to pretend that lying to CNN was not the same thing as lying to the American people. Um, but Susan, talk about the testimony and what struck you about it, but also it, it, what strikes me is beyond the sort of absurd theatrics that even that Corinne Lewandowski was engaged in, this was supposed to be one of these kind of blockbuster made-for-TV moments that the House Judiciary Committee, I thought maybe months ago, was going to start rolling out for the American people to tell the story of the Mueller report. And I don't think it really turned out that way. So I think the hearing was more successful than sort of commentators are giving credit for, although I guess it didn't make good TV. I do think that one lesson that uh, House Democrats should have learned from yesterday is that if they are interested in making good TV, having uh, committee counsel do the questioning actually is quite effective. The hero of the hearing, apparently. There we go, riding in at the end. um, And and that that actually, um, you know, less because of sort of skilled questioning, although it was quite skilled questioning, but just because allowing someone um, the five-minute rule and sort of uh, that's a really difficult constraint uh, to operate with. And so actually changing some of those procedural rules might be really important, front-loading that to the beginning of hearings and all the sort of the networks are are, um, tuned in. That said, you know, look, Corey Lewandowski was petulant. He was, you know... 
sneering. He refused to answer questions. Um, but behind the theatrics, a lot of really important substantive things occurred. A lot of important substantive things were co- were confirmed. So first of all, Corey Lewandowski confirmed that the Mueller report is accurate, that the president of the United States actually did instruct him to att- to go out and pressure the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, to limit the Mueller probe. That is significant because it is one of the critical elements of uh, sort of critical episodes of obstruction of justice in the Mueller report. One of those episodes that falls more in the category of all criminal elements being met. Really, really important that we now have that testimony on the record in open hearing in one place. And for all of sort of the the eye rolling, he was quite clear. The report is accurate, that the president of the United States is lying, that this really did happen. I think that was really significant. The other significant thing that happened was Corey Lewandowski's assertion of privilege and that he said that the assertion of privilege was at the direction of White House counsel and White House lawyers were sitting behind Corey Lewandowski in the hearing. Corey Lewandowski, for those of you following along at home, has never worked in the United States government. Executive privilege does not extend to individuals who have not worked in the United States government. The president of the United States' communication with all people everywhere is not executive privilege by the virtue of him being the president of the United States. It applies to a specific set of communications for a specific set of reasons. The arguments that it extends to Corey Lewandowski do not pass the laugh test here. And so the idea that the president, that the president of the president's counsel are directing a private American citizen to speciously assert a privilege that no lawyer in good faith believes is a valid privilege, that is the White House directing a private American citizen to defy a congressional order. That is a really, really serious escalation in the erosion of separation of powers. So I think the most important thing sort of that comes out of the Lewandowski hearing is not just getting people on the record, but it's the question of, what is Congress going to do about it now? Because what he did was he said, I've been instructed to not answer that question by White House counsel. And the committee, you know, Democrats came back at him and you don't have the right to, you know, how does anybody get executive privilege? They're trying to sort of engage him. But but Lewandowski just sort of smugly looked at them and said, like, what are you going to do about it? That's a real question to Congress. What are you going to do about it? And in the face of aggressive, incredibly novel assertions of privilege, basically saying, I don't recognize the authority of this body, Congress is going to need to decide whether or not it has teeth or not. There is the concept of inherent contempt authority. So this is the idea that Congress doesn't have to go through the executive branch to assert its contempt. It can do things itself. Now, the idea of slapping handcuffs on Corey Lewandowski, I think, is a little bit silly. I don't think it's particularly effective. I don't think the optics are great. That said, there are reasonable options. And again, acknowledging this is uncharted territory. This is new uh, interpretations of existing law, though no newer and far less ridiculous than the assertions of privilege the White House is putting on the table. But doing things like imposing $10,000 a day daily fines on, on anybody who refuses to answer a committee's question under subpoena without an assertion of valid privilege. They have to do something to actually start enforcing this stuff. Otherwise, congressional subpoenas are basically Congress saying, pretty please, and people like Corey Lewandowski saying, go fuck yourself. And this was the first hearing. And so whether or not they draw the line here, whether or not they prove they can make people answer their questions, a whole lot of other people in Washington, D.C. are watching right now of whether or not they want to act the same way. And so I I do think this is such an important moment for Congress to decide, like, what is it doing here? What does separation of powers mean? At the end of the movie The Front, which is a Woody Allen movie, and I know Woody Allen, you're not supposed to like quote him anymore, but I'm going to because it's relevant to this conversation. At the end of the movie The Front, uh, the Woody Allen character, uh, this is a movie set in the McCarthy era, uh, appears before the House on american Activities Committee, and they ask him to name names about writers in Hollywood who were communists. And he says... I don't recognize the right of this committee to ask me these questions. And furthermore, you can all go fuck yourselves, gentlemen. And he is led away in handcuffs to the as the credits roll. Okay, but he's led away in handcuffs. So so here's the point is it's a fantasy, right? That you actually aren't allowed to talk to Congress that way. And if you do, you get led away in handcuffs. 
And so I want to second Susan's point that the fundamental question before Congress right now is whether that is a fantasy and whether all this time that people have gone up to testify before Congress and have assumed that when Congress demands your testimony, it's actually a demand and it's actually a legally enforceable demand. Was that all bullshit? And right? it's legally enforceable even if the president of the United States doesn't right. want it to be. It, and this is an independent body of government that gets to demand your testimony. And the question is, is that all vapor? And has Donald Trump, which would be one of the most consequential acts of his, of his presidency, actually pulled the curtain away and showed that the, the, the wizard is a small man with no power at all? And that, in fact, there is no reason to comply with a congressional subpoena. And we are all Woody Allen, who says, you know, I don't recognize the right of this committee to ask me these questions, gentlemen, and further, you can all go fuck yourselves. So the question I have is, what do you expect will happen? I mean, we have seen the polarization and partisanship on Capitol Hill prevent the legislative body from doing anything to assert its own authorities repeatedly, even before the Trump administration, but vastly exacerbated under the Trump administration. But even if you aren't talking about it through that partisan valence, even if you're talking about a Democratic-led House that has all the incentive in the world, like, do you expect that they're going to pull that trigger? And if they won't, why won't they? So I think it comes down to whether or not Nancy Pelosi is going to have a backbone on this or not. I do not expect Jerry Nadler to get way ahead of House leadership that continues to play this very, very strange game by which they don't want to say the word impeachment. I mean, they'll say he's self-impeaching. Again, not a thing. Um, But, you know, they, they won't come out and say this is an impeachment inquiry. They won't call for impeachment sort of specifically. Isn't Lewandowski like the perfect target then because he doesn't actually work for the president? He's like the easiest target, right? So I actually think it was – right. This is the clearest case, right? There's there's no real legal argument here. And so I don't know what they're going to do. I do think that what they should do is make a very, very aggressive assertion – of congressional inherent contempt authority, and they have to think about what they want that to look like, and then they have to find a way to enforce it. And there are a lot of different options for enforcing. The federal courts have have their own contempt authority that they enforce in various ways. They have to, to make people stop for a minute and decide whether or not they're going to essentially defy congressional orders. And so, you know, one of the, I put out this idea yesterday of, of putting on, um, of having daily Fine. So not a new idea, but sort of, you know, I, I said they should apply it to this circumstance. And I got a lot of sort of right wing MAGA hat wearing, um, you know, bald eagle avatar uh, Twitter users saying this is authoritarianism, um, <laughs> you know, that you would suggest someone be fined, which like when they find out that a judge will put you in jail for, for not, um, you know, complying with court orders, they're going to be really upset. But, like there's a real point in that, which is it's not authoritarianism. It is the rule of law, the ability for a body, whether it is the court or Congress, to enforce its orders. You might call it inherent authority. <laughs> you in might fact. call it inherent. It is inherent. The Supreme Court has affirmed this principle again and again and again. But the problem is it doesn't matter if Congress isn't willing to use it. And so the problem is, is that if they just shrug right now, if they lose their backbone or lose their nerve and say, well, you know, the t- we didn't get the great TV clips that we wanted, so well, maybe we should back away and this wasn't such a good idea, they are going to damage the body of Congress. We are talking about things that you can't necessarily go back from people. Corey Lewandowski is the perfect place to take a stand this would be a far more complicated discussion if it was Don McGahn in the room, if it was a current White House advisor, if it was Jared Kushner. Even if it was one of the president's family members, this would be a more complicated conversation. Corey Lewandowski is the easiest, clearest, strongest hand they have to play. But if they blink now, they are not going to have the option to undo it later. And so 
I'm again like gonna ring my last tiny bit of optimism for the United <laughs> States Congress, the first branch of government, uh, that that it is going to decide to act like the first branch of government. Um, that said, I, I think it all comes down to what a handful of leaders in the House decide, and and frankly, from the outside, I have found it completely baffling to to understand their headspace or strategy or, frankly, if there even is one at this point. She also has a PSA in addition to all those things that Corey Lewandowski is. He is also, I believe, a candidate for the United States Senate in New Hampshire. Uh, He hasn't quite announced Well, he put up an interesting website website. during the break (laughs) (laughs) in the hearing. So I am married to somebody who is from New Hampshire, and so I think I can opine on the culture of New Hampshire a little bit. I don't see it, Corey well, Lewandowski. He is um, oh, he is theatrical, outrageous, uh, and unconventional and reminded us that uh, the leopard does not change his spots. Uh, all right. Let's move on to object lessons. Who wants to go first? We all have one. Tammy, you go first. Okay. You have two. There are <laughs> five? Oh, God. Okay. Um, mine is quick. It's a limerick. If you're on Twitter, you should be following at limericking. Limericking did such a good one on the Israeli elections. Netanyahu and those on his side appear to have lost or are tied. This outcome enhances his overall chances of being indicted and tried. That's great. That's worthy of wait, wait, don't tell me. We'll go around the table. Ben. I was looking at Lawfare's Facebook page today. And I came across this letter from uh, the Right Honorable Leif Isaacson uh, to Rational is that Security. A real person, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I assume it is. It's a. It is a real Facebook account. Whether it corresponds to a real person, I don't know. Leif Isaacson writes, "Dear Rational Security Gang, I'm a regular listener based in the United Kingdom." But excited to be on a work visit to D.C. just a few blocks from the Jungle Studio with no vested interests whatsoever, I wondered if this week you might be willing to share with listeners where the well-informed international security expert eats in D.C. these days. What's cooking at Brookings? What is lawfare fair? And who puts the rations in rational security? A friend would like to know, smiley face. Gratefully yours, Leif Isaacson. So I just want, first of all, want to congratulate Leif Isaacson on some uh, rip-roaringly good prose there. Yes, Um, And secondly, I wanted to tell uh, Leif Isaacson about Shane and my uh, uh, muscle dive. Oh, yeah. Oh, it is Um, good, It's a great place. uh, So just a few blocks from here on Jefferson Place is a underground, it's about half a story underground, Muscle Belgian muscle dive, uh, where you can get uh, some might call it a muscle bar. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Shane and I will occasionally be known to just text one another the one word muscles and uh, then meet up and have a beer and some muscles. I think it's called St. Arnold's. St. Arnold's, yeah. You have um, to go down. It's like downstairs. It looks kind of divey. It is, it is really kind of divey, actually, <laughs> um, but it's kind of awesome. And there's lots of different kinds of muscles, uh, and so that is my. It's, it's lawfare approved. It, well, and it's and it's uh, particularly Shane and Ben approved. Yeah, it's for, very Shane and Ben we, approved. We kind of uh, like that's our like secret lunch spot. Yeah, yeah. St. Regis for cocktails, also very good on K Street. Red Hen for pasta, if you're into that. Shane, you could go for the authentic experience. Just sit in front of your laptop with like a power bar or something, and frantically edit something with one hand while while you drink spring water or smart water. That's the report. (laughs) The real, yeah, the Washington experience. Candy, Uh, what's your what's your uh, eating recommendation for Leaf? I'm I'm not going to flag a restaurant in particular, but I will say for most visitors to Washington. Um, if you haven't had Ethiopian food, this is a great oh, yeah. city in which to try it. Don't miss. Yeah. Uh, nearby in the immediate area of Brookings at 14th and Rhode Island or 14th and P. P is a very good uh, little Ethiopian place. Yeah. Uh, Lalibela. Lalibela. Lalibela, exactly. Yeah. yeah, very nice. 
Susan. I will speed through my double object lesson, which is double log rolling. You guys will be <laughs> so proud to do it twice in one object lesson. Um, so number one is that after a several week break, we will be launching volume two of the report podcast, getting into um, all of the fun-filled obstruction of justice storylines that I know everyone has been waiting for. Um, so that's coming out on Friday. So listen to it. Um, I and missed then- it. I've missed the report. I'm so glad it's back. Well, we had some bonus episodes, including one featuring Shane. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got more good stuff coming for you. Um, and my second object lesson is a mic drop because Ben and I are done with our book. Woohoo! Done. We have sent it out into the universe. We fact-checked every fact. Anyone who buys this book must read every note I love them like my own children, and we have spent many hours over the past month making sure there are no misspellings, every period is in place, every fact is cited. And so if you read it and you find an error, we don't want to know. <laughs> don't, don't Keep tell it us. to yourself. We've defined it as factually accurate now, and so right. we've done it's everything. Like making fun of someone's child. We've just done everything we can. Don't. So just if you find a mistake, keep it to yourself. Just deal with it. Um, um, congratulations, we're done. you guys. Unmaking That's the awesome. presidency. Unmaking on Amazon and not on my desk anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Go buy it. My object <clears throat> in the category of uh, finally. Uh, the U.S. Navy has finally confirmed that mysterious videos showing pilots spotting UFOs are genuine. Here we go again with Shane's obsession. Now, I want to point out <clears throat> the Navy has not yet come out and said that they have the alien. We'll get there eventually. Uh, but no, It's a UFO. Just, that means it's, it's UFO, unidentified. Oh, we actually don't say UFO anymore. We say unidentified aerial phenomenon. You know what, Shane? I didn't believe before, but now I do. This was the piece of evidence. (laughs) Um, I put this in the category also of kind of like, eh, although I'm very excited because it has been reported that the Navy, like, gives aviators forms from when they see crazy shit they can't explain in the sky that does things that physics can't really explain. There's a little form that you fill out, and it's meant to have you catalogs. Have you foiled them all? There's a form for Uh, everything. Patient Leopold's probably on that. Uh, but no, but I think this, this is very interesting. Yes, the Navy's coming out and being like, yes, we don't know what the hell these things are. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Like, I don't know that they were – it's also kind of like disappointing though because I wanted them to say, oh, we know what they are. And they're aliens. They're from Nebulon. They're just not going to tell you, Shane. They're going to yeah. leave it They didn't want to admit that it was they're Russian. They're heptapods. They're heptapods. Oh, my God. You're speaking my language. Get that? Get it? <laughs> See what I did? Oh, God. All right. I think we're going to let the audience go home now. <laughs> uh, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find specially branded Rational Security UFO videos at iwanttobelieve.lawfare. We are about to have new Rational Security merch. It's not quite there yet, but oh, really? we're, we're going to have new Rational Security merch real soon, as well as the Report merch Ooh. and Lawfare merch. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be like, it's going to be a merch palooza You know, there's those buttons that it say, I think we have the post, I read the Mueller Report. We should have one that says, I, I listen to the Mueller Report. report. That's a good great. idea. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security whenever you leave a review or a rating for the podcast. Or should I please leave a rating or review for the podcast? Whenever you're out giving five-star reviews for a podcast. You better or we will hold you in contempt and arrest you. Inherent, inherent podcast authority. <laughs> it's either that or five stars, people. You make the call. Uh, the show's audio engineer this week is Jacob Schultz. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Adam Schiff. You probably didn't know this, but before he ran for Congress, he was very into punk and new wave and actually had a uh, cover of uh, Ramon's songs called ICIG at CBGB. Oh, that's pretty good. Oh, that's good. Oh, right? Nice. That's good. Very nice. It's all beepies. It will always be Ikig to me. Ikig. Ikig. <laughs> Sophia Yehan prefers Ikig. Ikig. Uh, on behalf of my good friends, Smart Hoffman Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. See you next week. Bye-bye. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 